codependency, acting drunk when you're sober, and the conclusion of the tale of two Bryans. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep into codependency. And y'all are in for a real damn treat for two reasons. One, you are going to get to hear the rest of the Brian number two story. And later on in the episode, I am speaking with Nina Renata Aaron the badass bitch and author of Good Morning Destroyer of Men's Souls, a memoir of women, addiction, and love. I mean, how can she not be a badass bitch with a title like that? Now, codependency is a term commonly thrown around these days, but what exactly does it mean? For the purpose of our discussion here, Codependency means that we constantly look outside ourselves for love, affirmation, and attention from people who cannot provide it. And at the same time, we believe we are not truly worthy of that love we so desperately seek. And this is all driven by fear and distorted thinking that resulted from our dysfunctional childhoods. We choose people who can and will abandon us and lack clarity in their own lives because it matches our childhood experiences. I know, that is a tough pill to swallow. How uplifting. But remember, as I keep emphasizing, awareness is always the first step to change. So now to finish the tale of two Bryans. And if you haven't listened to the first episode, I highly recommend you go listen to that before continuing to listen to this episode. But for those who did listen, let's briefly recap where we left off. So we had Brian number one and the realization that my dating issues were a result of my unresolved childhood pain and the realization that I was an adult child. I read that book. I took a year off from dating, and I felt confident that my broken picker was fixed. Enter Brian number two, a pretty uneventful first date, followed by him texting me One Direction music videos and drunk dialing me in a blackout on a Monday night, and me deciding to give him another chance, while also promising myself that with even the slightest hint of another red flag, I would cut the cord on Brian number two. Now, the rest of this story is not comical. The rest of this story is a story of two very sick people, one suffering from the disease of alcoholism and one suffering from the disease of codependency and family dysfunction. The rest of this story is a painful story of me finally hitting my adult child bottom, but it is also a beautiful story of me embarking on my road to recovery, which has brought us to this moment right now. an Italian restaurant for our second date. And the food was actually pretty bad, but the date went well. He was profusely apologetic for his boy band drunken sailor behavior from the night before and again emphasized that that was out of character for him. And to really drive that point in, he did not drink at dinner. And we had a great time. He made me laugh and he laughed at my jokes. And the conversation was natural and easy. 
We realized at a certain point that we had the same birthday, January 27th, which was a little bit weird. I told him if he wanted to continue this relationship, that he would need to be okay with celebrating his birthday on the 28th or the 29th because I wasn't willing to share the 27th with him. After dinner, we went back to his apartment, and this is when I told him that I was a recovering alcoholic and had been sober for nine years. And then just like deja fucking vu, he told me that his sister was also an alcoholic, like Brian number one. But thankfully, his sister had gotten sober and was still alive. Now, this should have been the slightest hint of another red flag, knowing that alcoholism was in his genetics. But again, just like Brian number one, I thought to myself, this is a good thing because hopefully that means he will be supportive of my sobriety and understand that I suffer from a disease. And Brian number two didn't drink at all on our next two dates. And then on the fifth date, he had two glasses of wine. And I think to myself, this guy's clearly not an alcoholic because alcoholics can't just have two glasses of wine. To me, two glasses of wine, why bother? That seems rather torturous to me. So then one Saturday, we go to a sports bar to watch some college football. It has probably been three weeks since our first date. So hell yeah, guys, can I get a high five for him still being interested in me at the three-week mark? So we're probably there for like four hours. And he had several IPAs, maybe like five or six. And to my alcoholic self, that didn't seem like a lot, considering we were eating as well. I mean, six beers for me would be when I would finally start to feel something. But also, IPAs were not a thing when I was drinking, so I was not aware that they had a higher alcohol content than regular old beer. So the game is over, and at this point, he is starting to seem a little tipsy. He's got a slight slur to his speech. He's acting a little more sillier than normal, but no big deal. We are headed back to his apartment for the rest of the night, which meant that he wouldn't be drinking anymore because he purposely did not keep alcohol in his apartment. Side note, that should have also been logged as a red flag when I learned that he purposely did not keep alcohol in his house. So we are a few blocks from his apartment when he tells the Uber driver that he can actually just let us out here. And here, well, here was in front of a bar. And when I asked him what we were doing, he said he just wanted to have one more beer. Fair enough, right? Well, one more beer turned into two more beers, which turned into two doubles of whiskey. And the evening ended with me helping him up three flights of stairs and helping him into his bed. And then I left his apartment and I never saw him again. Yeah, right. You know, that's not what happened. And the saddest thing about it was that ending the relationship with him right then and there wasn't even a consideration to me because I was all in on Brian number two, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and more sickness, to love and cherish till death do us part. And that was just the first of many times where he pulled that whole switcheroo routine where destination, his apartment, actually meant destination, another bar. Like I told you, learning that I was an adult child, reading that book, and not dating for a year hadn't changed a damn thing. Now, up until this point, pretty much all of the guys I had dated had been assholes. Some were drunk assholes and some were sober assholes. But Brian number two wasn't an asshole. He was just a drunk. And in many respects, our relationship was the type of relationship that I had been desperately longing for. Brian number two made me a part of his life. I wasn't his secret girlfriend. He wanted me to meet his friends. He actually introduced me to other people as his girlfriend. We didn't have to drive far distances to go to restaurants to avoid seeing people we may know. And he was always complimenting me. He would surprise me with little gifts. And he never gave up 
on trying to win my cat over, which never happened. And the other thing about Brian number two was that he didn't drink every single time we were together. There were just as many times that he didn't drink than when he did drink. But when he did drink, it was bad. Like, really bad. Like, leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull him out of a bar bad. And that happened more than once, y'all. And I vacillated between feeling drunk in love and feeling fucking miserable. And as the relationship progressed, the drunk in love feeling became far and few between. And I acted and felt crazier than ever before. I may have been physically sober, but I sure as hell did not act sober. I was a horrible employee. I was a horrible friend, and I stopped doing all the things that were good for me and that made me feel good about myself because all that mattered was Brian number two. I was either with him or obsessing about him. So now let's fast forward to the day before Thanksgiving. I am a little over two months into the relationship at this point. And I am supposed to be flying to St. Louis that morning where my grandma lived and I was meeting my parents there. But I woke up that morning with that feeling, that feeling that I've talked about several times, that feeling that I felt often as a child, that feeling that I felt when Brian number one ghosted me, that feeling like I was going to die if I didn't have that person in my life. And there was no way I could get on that plane. I couldn't bear the thought of being away from Brian number two for 72 hours. So I called my mom and I told her that my flight out of SFO was delayed, which meant that I would miss my connecting flight and that there weren't any other flights available that could get me there in time for Thanksgiving dinner the next day. All a lie. And this wasn't the first time that I had done this, that I had bailed out on my family for a trip or a family gathering or a holiday because I couldn't stand to be away from a guy. The first time I did it was in the 11th grade. So I text Brian number two and I tell him that I wasn't going to be able to go to St. Louis and asked if I could tag along with him to go to his friend's house the next day for Thanksgiving, which he said, absolutely. So later that night, I go over to his apartment, and he tells me that his friend's girlfriend, who was the one that was hosting Thanksgiving the next day, said that I wasn't allowed to come, that they had too many people. And he was pissed about that, and he said that if I couldn't go, that he wasn't going to go at all, and that he would just spend the day alone with me. And I remember thinking, wow, finally, someone is choosing me I wasn't plan B to Brian number two. I was plan A. So the following morning, we are sitting in the living room drinking coffee when he turns to me and says, so I've been thinking about it some, and I feel kind of guilty about not going over to their place at all. I mean, I already told them that I was going to bring the green bean casserole, so I'm just going to go over there for a few hours, and then we can meet up later tonight quite the punch to the gut. Of course, he wasn't choosing me. But in all honesty, it had nothing to do with him choosing me or not choosing me. It had to do with his alcoholism choosing alcohol. So, like any good codependent, I come up with a plan to control and manipulate the situation. I say to him, I have an idea. I have a bunch of Marriott points. Why don't I get us a room at the Ritz-Carlton and we can have a mini staycation? You see, I was afraid that he would completely bail on me, that he would never leave his friend's house once he got there because I knew that once he starts drinking, he can't stop drinking. So I thought that if I added some stakes to the situation, a hotel reservation, something with a monetary value, there was less of a chance that he would bail on me, which is sad and depressing to reflect back upon. (laughs) And my plan worked. He didn't bail on me. But our mini staycation at the Ritz turned into 
three days of him drinking around the clock. It felt like being in a shitty motel that you could rent by the hour, except there were a thousand thread count sheets, room service with fancy mini bottles of artisan ketchup, and turndown service that we never actually got because we never left the room, but had we left, we would have returned with some nice little chocolates on our pillow. And I have this vivid memory of looking at myself in the mirror in the bathroom and saying to myself, how the fuck did I get myself here? How was this my life? And I hated myself. And I hated that I couldn't walk away. I hated that walking away wasn't even an option to me. So the week after Thanksgiving, I missed two days of work to nurse Brian number two back to health after a 16-day around-the-clock bender. And I remember looking at him and seeing him sweat and seeing him shake, seeing him unable to sleep. And it took me right back to my final days in college when I was withdrawing after a three-week bender, and I knew exactly how he felt. And I sat on the floor of his bedroom, and I read him passages from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, over the course of our relationship, we had had several conversations about him being an alcoholic, and at first he totally dismissed it. But as the relationship went on, he was beginning to see that he did have a problem, but he wasn't willing or ready to do anything about it. So after those two days of me taking care of him, he broke up with me, saying that it wasn't fair what he was putting me through, that I deserved better, and that he couldn't stand to see the way that he was hurting me. But this breakup lasted less than 48 hours before he reached out saying that he had changed his mind. And for the next month and a half, I lived in a hyper-vigilant hell hole, never knowing what to expect, never knowing if it was going to be a good day or if it was going to be a bad day, always waiting for the other shoe to drop always scanning my environment for any indication that he was going to abandon me, and I was a fucking slave to the relationship. If he didn't respond to a text within an hour, I would go into a fetal position level of anxiety, feeling like I needed to crawl out of my fucking skin. But as soon as I would hear back from him, within seconds, I would feel complete relief just like a fucking junkie. And I walked around with immense shame. I was no longer in denial about what was going on. I knew exactly what was going on. I knew exactly what I was doing. But I was completely powerless. All I cared about was getting my next fix with little concern of the repercussions or what would happen when the quote-unquote high wore off, just like an alcoholic saying, I'll get sober tomorrow as they take another swig from the bottle. Then one morning in the middle of January, I woke up at Brian number two's apartment and the first words that he said to me were, I don't want to do this anymore. And he was breaking up with me again. But this time, it wasn't because of his drinking. It was because he didn't want to be exclusive anymore. He said that he wanted to be able to date other people. And that hurt so much fucking more than him saying that it was because of his drinking and what that was doing to me. And I couldn't get myself to leave his apartment. I became paralyzed. I was literally holding myself hostage at his apartment because I knew this time was for real. I knew it was over and I knew that he wouldn't come back around in two days saying that he had made a mistake. 
And I felt like I was having a nervous breakdown. I guess I probably was having a nervous breakdown. And I wish he would have just kicked me out of his apartment, but he didn't. Probably because he could see how mentally unstable I was and was scared of what I would do if he kicked me out. And after four hours, I, I called a friend and I told her what was going on and that I couldn't get myself to leave. And she said to me, I'm calling you an Uber and having it take you to my place and you better fucking get in that Uber. And I did. I did get in that fucking Uber. And as soon as I sat down, I had this weird sense of relief wash over me. I can't explain it. I was still in an excruciating amount of pain, but I also had this weird sense of gratitude wash over me. And it became so clear to me in that moment that we had entered this lifetime with a soul agreement. I was brought into his life for a reason, but more importantly, he was brought into my life for a reason. You see, Brian, number two, wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't an asshole. He was a blessing because it was in this moment that I finally saw the seriousness of what I was dealing with, that this was even more powerful than my alcoholism, and that that lady had been right. I had to treat this just as fucking seriously as my alcoholism, and that's exactly what I did. Now, this isn't the end of our conversation about codependency. There is much more we will be unpacking in future episodes. And in fact, this isn't the end of Brian number two. There is a bit of a sequel that I will also be sharing in a future episode. But for now, I have an amazing interview to share with you with another fellow recovering codependent. And I do just want to say that you guys can find me on Instagram and TikTok at adultchildpod. Also, if you could please give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast, I would be forever grateful. And please make sure to stick around to the end of the episode for another edition of Hit a Girl Up, where I read listeners' messages and questions. It's my pleasure to introduce truly one badass bitch and the author of Good Morning, Destroyer of Men's Souls, a memoir of women, addiction, and love, Nina Renata Arone. Hey, girl. Hey. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. Now, everyone needs to read this book, especially with a title like that. So I think that that's where we need to start is we need the backstory on this title. That is a perfect place to start. Um, the backstory on the title is, um, it's actually the way that um, Carrie Nation, who was a temperance crusader, uh, used to greet bartenders. She used to say, good morning, destroyer of men's souls. She was a believer that that alcohol was sort of at the root of all of the world's ills and that um, so many men have fallen prey to alcoholism in her orbit that she was like on a personal crusade for her the whole second half of her life to get people to stop drinking and to to prohibit alcohol so she was the one who some people sometimes like kids learn about her in history class I wonder if they still do but she used to smash saloon tops with a hatchet she called those her hatchetations these sort of like activist gatherings where she would like actually destroy bars so that's where the title comes from. But some people have interpreted it as um, some kind of like man-hating. I've gotten a couple letters from men who think that it's um, describing you. To be. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I, I told um, I told a friend that I was interviewing you and a guy, and he said that that, that should be your name, talking about me. <laughs> Were you flattered? <laughs> Very much. So, you know, the underlying theme of your book is codependency, but I really think it's a beautiful example of, of the disease of family dysfunction. 
and you really touch upon all of the, you know, major themes of, of being an adult child and all the things that I, you know, touch upon in this podcast. And it's just such a beautiful illustration of, you know, what happened to you as a kid and the faulty programming that resulted from that. And then the subsequent chaos and pain um, that that came from that. Um, And I could relate to the whole damn thing. Um, And I had a a visceral reaction reading very much of it. And our stories are so, so similar. But I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about your childhood. I think like me, you know, it's like addiction and alcoholism has kind of always been, I mean, I call it like one of my siblings. It's like always been (laughs) present in my life. Um, But I was hoping, yeah, that you could talk a little bit about your, your upbringing. And then specifically, I'm also curious about if there was a particular point in your life where you kind of realized how fucked up it really was. That's a great question. Um, and I love the phrase faulty programming. I do think that it, codependency is sort of the, the word that I chose to use in this book and that I do use in my life often, but, um, but it has kind of fallen out of favor. Um, and I know that a lot of people don't use that language anymore. I like it for a lot of reasons, but, um, family dysfunction that sort of generalized dysfunction is the name of the game with, with, you know, addiction and alcoholism at its center. Um, I write about this in the book, but I grew up in a Jewish household with very little alcohol. Um, and I remember being sort of stunned by the proliferation of drinks in other families' homes. There were like lots of, you know, my little Gentile friends whose parents would start with the gin and tonics at like four 30 or something. And I was just always kind of, shocked by that and a little bit scandalized but um I didn't yet see that um marijuana was kind of at the you know played that role in my household and in my family and um uh so my dad smoked pot every day I mean regularly and um I don't think I really had an awareness that that was at all I mean, not, I didn't until the kind of like real criminalization of the whole war on drugs and the way that it was sort of operationalized in the public school system through DARE and all these, you know, warnings and, and all the just say no campaign and all those, we had all this kind of weird um, curriculum, anti-drug curriculum. And I think I was like a little too old for it to take for me, but my little sister, I remember was like a really good, soldier in the, in the war on drugs as a little as a little girl and she um at some point she was probably in like third grade and I was probably in fifth or sixth grade or something but I remember her bringing home this like real concern she was really scared that our dad was going to get in trouble uh-huh. and um and those were the first kind of family conversations I remember about the fact that this was illegal. And but before that, I just had this understanding that I wasn't supposed to talk about it um, to other adults and to like friends, parents and stuff like that. And so I must have known it was illegal, but it also just didn't make the grownups particularly scary as alcohol did. It was kind of like a, a softener more than anything. And I had seen friends, parents, get drunk and be assholes. (laughs) So I never saw that at home. That was just like not the way in my family. And then um, when I was a little bit older, my older sister, and this is a big part of the book. um, You're one of three, right? Yeah. In the middle of three sisters. Yeah. My older sister got into drugs at the, probably at the very beginning of high school. So I was still in middle school. And then over the next few years got really heavy into drugs and um, addicted to heroin. So that started when I was probably 13 and 14. And, um, and very quickly I started to understand how much that was impacting our family life at home. It was like just undeniable that everything was, um, was affected by this kind of terror that my parents were thrown into, especially my mother. And, and, did they, and did they ever sit down and, you know, were you kind of just taking bits and pieces and putting the story together? Or was there ever a time where they sat down and was like, Hey, this is what's going on to their great credit. And it's, I think the reason that my family remains really close today, they were always 
very honest and um, sometimes probably too honest. I mean, there was a lot, you know, I think my mother and I have always been incredibly close and we grew ever, you know, even closer and more enmeshed in dealing with this um, situation with my sister's addiction. And I have since been in enough meetings and read enough to know that it's a very common dynamic for, you know, in a family with, um, married hetero parents that the father is kind of like emotionally checked out and the mother sort of like picks a child to accompany her on this journey. And so, you know, I was kind of my mom's confidant. Yeah. And, um, and so I sort of spent a lot of time in the role of like another parent, just talking to her, going to check my sister into rehab, going to family day and going to talk to the therapist and stuff with my mom. Um, and my dad, who is a wonderful person, was just like not as alarmed, didn't feel, I don't think as, um, he, he was sort of, didn't feel the urgency around it quite as much. And um, so I started to understand like that, that dynamic between my mother and I and my sister and I, because I was always sort of keeping her secrets. And, you know, I knew a lot more than I would, I would find things out about my sister at high school, for example, and then have to decide whether to report that information to my mom. And so I knew that that was fucked up, but I don't think I understood how much those dynamics were going to impact the rest of my relationships until they did, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can relate a lot to the parentification stuff and mm-hmm. um, it really, you know, it, it, it qualifies as emotional abuse because it, you know, it, it messes up the normal process of development and, mm-hmm. you know, robs us of, of the childhood that we're all entitled to, you know? Did you know that it was messed up at the time? No, I thought it was really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there is this, um, there's a fantastic memoir called Wild Game by Adrian Brodeur, which is not at all about uh, recovery or addiction, but it's about um, being asked to keep the secret of her mother's infidelity for many years. And it's about how sort of enlivening it was for her as a teenager to be, you know, given this incredible responsibility and to be, you know, her mom's best friend, basically. And it's, really screwed up but it's really good and and I think that even though hers is this kind of you know it's a very extreme story but there was so much for me to relate to in there I think there's just I think a lot of women end up having those kinds of relationships with their mothers and as a mother it's something I think about often how not to reproduce that dynamic yeah and it also just creates the um you know like one of the common traits of an adult child is this addiction to excitement, right? Mm -hmm. Initially it was going to be fear, but then, I mean, that's what it is. And I know you talk about it a lot in your book, but it's, um, I think it says like in the, um, adult, one of the adult child books, it talks about how, you know, we view, um, like, uh, emotionally healthy people as boring. Yes. Yep. (laughs) So that's why like a first date with somebody who was like normal and healthy would never turn into another one because they're boring as fuck. Exactly. I know. I think of that as like a cornerstone of my recovery is like learning how to be bored and how to see healthy situations and people and not run from them and not be like, you know, quietly freaking out. (laughs) So really, that's a challenge. But I've gotten much better. I'm quite boring now. So how, um, I guess, when when did you first learn about the term codependency? Um, I learned about it pretty early. I was in high school and I and and a guidance counselor um, because I think I, you know, I was really distracted by stuff that was going on at home. And my parents' marriage was also ending at the time. And it was just, we had just moved to a new town. And I was like halfway through high school and starting to kind of fuck up a little bit. And, um, and I was, it was suggested to me by a guidance counselor that I go to an Al-Anon meeting, um, which I did. And I write about that experience too in the book, because at the time I was really sort of alienated. Um, It felt like a, it felt like it was, you know, the elderly wives of male alcoholics. Um, And I felt like I didn't know how to talk about 
heroin and crack and things that were happening in my household in that context, even though everybody was so nice and gentle, but, um, but it did sort of like lay the groundwork. I mean, I was probably 15 or 16 at that time. And I then knew that Al-Anon was there and I knew what it was. And even though it didn't quite take that first time when my sister was in deeper in crisis, a few years later, I returned. I remember going in New York City when I was in college. I went with my younger sister. We used to meet at an Al-Anon meeting. Um, and, and I sort of dipped in and out for years, but I treated it the way some people treat recovery, which it tends not to work best this way, I think. But sometimes people, you know, you access 12-step recovery in a crisis and think like, I'm just going to like hit a few meetings in the next few weeks until things calm down or something. But I was not working a program until later, until I was in this relationship I write about in the book and was like absolutely desperate. Now, I think it's interesting, you know, obviously your sister was, was the addict. My mom was the alcoholic. You know, some people that grow up in, with, you know, those experiences, they never touch drugs or alcohol. Um, obviously, that was not the case for either of us. Mm-hmm. So I wondered about that for you. Um, was there ever a thought like I shouldn't be doing this? Or um, did you think I'm just not I'm just not going to be like her? Or, you know, did you ever feel like you, you know, that that you soon could become your sister as well? I've thought about that a lot. I mean, I think that um, for a time, when my sister first started using drugs, it was um, really scary to me. We were really close in age and all three of us were really close. You know, we still are like best friends. And, um, And I was completely freaked out. And she was doing things like, you know, that we had never done before. We had all been kind of good girls and we loved our parents and she started like staying out all night or, and you know, this was before the age of cell phones or any kind of traceability. So I, it, I don't think it was exactly in reaction to that, but at the time I was really into like punk rock and hardcore and stuff. And so I was straight edge for a little bit when I was like 14, 15. And I remember my sister and I getting into these conversations about it because she was just like, that is so lame. And I was like, what you're doing is lame. Drugs aren't cool, you know? And so I definitely now see that my finding my way into that little subculture as in part a response to this kind of like growing chaos at home. But, um, but it wasn't long until I started, started drinking and discovered alcohol myself. And, um, and then, you know, I think that, it's something that happens often to people in alcoholic families or or people with codependency. I, there was so much that I couldn't say and so many resentments that I was storing and so many feelings I couldn't like quite access. Um, And so when I discovered drugs and alcohol, it was like just such a relief to sort of numb some of that. And, and I think I, now understand that I drank a lot in anger and resentment. I sort of like drank so that I didn't have to say, I was scared to ever like speak my truth. And I think I grew so alienated from it that I didn't really know what it was anyway. Um, But I started really like numbing out with drugs and alcohol. And then I, I, you know, I always had the example of my sister as this kind of extreme and like a place where I sort of knew I had the capacity to go, but mm-hmm. she was kind of always occupying that place. And then later I had relationships with people who were like just more fucked up than I was. And so by comparison, I was always able to kind of, I was like, Whoa, dude, like I'm not like over here losing jobs and crashing cars. And like, you know, I, I know how to do this and keep it together. And so I think, um, for better or worse, I mean, it's kind of unfortunate, but I think for those of us who are like, high bottom drunks, as they say, you know, I, I realized like maybe I was never gonna crash the car and lose everything and, and have to build my life back from scratch. Like maybe I was just gonna coast along miserably alcoholic, but at this like low level and nobody was even going to notice. And that was kind of even scarier to me. That seemed at some point that seemed like a worse fate to me. Cause I was like, yeah, but I do think I always 
I sort of always maintained that relation to someone. There was always someone in my midst who was like really bad off to whom I could compare myself and come out looking pretty good. <laughs> now, when, when was it, would you say that you really had your aha moment with the seriousness of your codependency issues? Oh man. Um, I tried to think about that actually while writing this book and I, there was no real like one moment but I definitely think I mean the thing that sort of sent me back to Al-Anon in a real like boot camp way like I need to save my own life kind of way was just um it was the fact that I kept getting sucked back into this kind of toxic relationship with somebody who it just became clearer and clearer did not have my best interest at heart and I think some of the worst examples of that I mean this was a person who was physically abusive at times and who was also um I mean it's weird to say but I think it was partly financial the fact that I was in a relationship with somebody who was spending my money and um and owed me probably like you know tens of thousands of dollars by the time all was said and done and um I sort of just was living in this kind of like frantic, scarce, broke way that, that, um, I didn't have to be living that way. I like kept getting better jobs and I kept sort of like growing my capacity to have like an organized together life, but life kept just feeling the same. It always felt the same on total, like just unmanageability. Everything felt chaotic, dirty, crazy, late. You know, I felt like I was sort of like behind on everything. And that sort of started to be like the the disparity between that sort of sweaty, like anxious sensation and my actual life. I was kind of like, I realized I didn't have to feel that way necessarily. Cause I mean, like I had been sort of like slowly getting my shit together the whole time I was in this relationship. And this person was like, you know, he would like, exit the scene dramatically and then return and I would end up back in the relationship and I would just end up back in that place. So I was like, it was like two steps forward, three steps back. Um, I mean, I do think that there was an incidence of physical violence in which I thought I was going to die. That, um, was one major catalyst. Um, and that didn't snap me out of, it didn't break us up. I had to sort of put in the time and the work in recovery and in therapy but when I think back there, yeah, I think there was like one moment where I could have lost my life to that relationship. And that was pretty eye opening. But it was like a slow burn, you know, it was like a steady march toward this, like just desperation to feel different and better than I did. Yeah, And you talk about it in your book about how reaching, you know, hitting your bottom is so much different, like when it comes to codependency than it is to, to alcoholism or addiction. Um, but you know, both of us are East coasters that came out to San Francisco and hit our codependency bottoms in San Francisco. So I was thinking that if anyone is trying to hit their bottom a little sooner rather than later, that maybe they should come out to the Bay. (laughs) I think that's a really good idea. Totally. You did too. You were in San Francisco when you hit that bottom. Yeah. Yeah. And I truly believe that, you know, I, I came out there because that's exactly what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to meet Brian number one and I was supposed to meet Brian number two and I was supposed to meet my therapist. Um, I truly believe that. You know, I think often about just like the deep shame of being in a relationship like that. (sighs) And I know so many women who have felt that shame. And there's also sort of like, I just think there's like a lot of cultural messaging that's like, sort of lightly makes fun of people who are, you know, get sucked into those kinds of relationships or you just end up feeling, you can feel really stupid. And to me, it's really important that, and it's a big part of why I wanted to write this book that, um, that women feel like they can talk about this and that, you know, nobody is sort of like above or beyond like the capacity to end up in a relationship like this. It is like something that, um, sort of happens without you realizing it and it takes what it takes to get out. And unfortunately, a lot of people like do lose their lives before they can get out, you know, or they lose their capacity to like live to their full potential because they're 
being dragged down by somebody else's disease. Disease. Yeah. But yeah. I do think it's like that kind of, there are more lessons to be learned. I, I think sometimes, you know, it took me a really, really long time to learn those lessons. Which yeah, is, me too. Yeah. <laughs> but what it is for me, it's like, you know, um, we have that awareness and then we have to like sit in that awareness and feel that shitty pain, you know, like yep. having the awareness of what you're doing until you're finally able to do something about it. But for me, that awareness period's always taken me a little bit longer than me I Me too. But I do think oh. like I've seen that happen for other people and it's really magic. It's like once that kind of pilot light is lit, mm-hmm. like there is a point after which you can't deny what's going on. It's just that you can't yet change your circumstances, but you see it, you start to see it so clearly. And it's like the more work you do on yourself and the more you kind of like grow this capacity to be kind to yourself or like yourself or whatever, you just, it starts to get clearer and clearer. And so I kind of, that if, if Al-Anon has taught me anything, it's that. And that's what I have always said to my sponsees and Al-Anon, like if you just focus on yourself and just focus on taking care of yourself, everything else follows from there because that's the way that you organically grow enough self-love that you just cannot justify being treated that way anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's like the magic of recovery in Al-Anon. Yeah. I always tell my sponsees, like if they're new, I'm like, you do not need to be embarrassed to tell me anything. I was like, yeah, I mean, seriously. I'm at nine years of sobriety. I'm leaving work at 11 to go pull a boyfriend out of a bar. Like, trust me, <laughs> I didn't take my sponsor's suggestions for like nine years. So I get it. It's fucking hard. And it is, I felt so much shame because like I watched all of my other friends, like be able to improve their picker and make good. Re- and I couldn't figure totally. out what the fuck was wrong with me for totally. so long. Me too. And I, and that kind of alienation, which I talk about some in the book, but which I'm kind of obsessed with because it's like people either get it or they don't mm-hmm. like, there are these people who I don't understand how it's like an attachment thing, or it's like a happy family growing up thing. But like, I did have a pretty happy family. I have the, a, this amazing family that went through a lot of shit, but, but the, I don't understand how you end up being somebody who makes like sound romantic choices. I just, I'm like, who are those people? What were they like listening to different songs than me or like reading different books? Like what did they, you know, I, but I feel like now after a lot of heartache, I am one of those people, but I had to like learn how in a really remedial way. <laughs> yeah. The good thing for me was that I was never one that hopped from like one relationship. Like I usually had long stretches of being single and mm-hmm. I would feel so good. And I was convinced that I was going to be a different person in the next one and well, <laughs> down the tube. And then what did you keep replaying the same pattern? Yeah. 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 I mean, I would yeah. not, I would stop smoking. As soon as I started dating, I was smoking cigarettes again. Like literally uh-huh. like, one date, chain smoke city. Mm. Yep, I relate to that. Oh, stop exercising, you know, barely mm-hmm. eat, or when I did, I just eat a whole pizza and mm-hmm. all that yeah. shit. Yep. Living. Um, so writing this book. Question on how did you handle you obviously, you know, it's focused on yourself, but you obviously share um intimate and vulnerable details about other people, like in particular this relationship. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. What was your process in deciding, uh, like what to share and what not to share? And did you let anybody know, Hey, this is what I wrote. I just want to let you know. Yeah, I, um, I did. I chose to let people know. And I chose to, um, I remember Mary Carr, who's written to me, like some of the best memoirs, especially she wrote a book lit, which is like her sobriety memoir, which I think is extraordinary. Um, I remember hearing her in an interview say that she let everybody read the parts of the book that they were in because she was kind of like, you know, it's not, it's not my um, desire to alienate people or, or say things about them that they don't think are true. And of course I'm a writer and I get to, you know, tell my own story, but um, and I remember that really resonated with me at the time. And I thought, yeah, like, I don't, I don't want this to like, be published. And that's when my mother finds out what I decided to include or whatever. So I actually, um, wrote a full draft of the book and then 
shared it with the sort of implicated parties, the major, the major players who were my immediate family, my ex-husband and um, this ex-boyfriend who is kind of like, you know, arguably the star. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, fortunately he's also a narcissist and I think was kind of unbothered by the fact that he seems like a monster in the book. And he sort of like chose to focus on the good parts of that sort of told our love story and whatever. Um, but he did read, he read it a couple times in draft form. And then he read a, a, an advanced copy of galley before it came out. And, um, and the other people in my immediate circle did. And I ended up, I did leave a lot out. I mean, it's such a strange thing to try to write your life through one particular, you know, from one particular angle kind of. And there were so many ways in which once I was writing this book, I could see my entire life, like everything that had ever happened seemed somehow related to addiction and recovery and codependency. And, um, but there was still a lot of curating to be done. And, um, and I chose to focus on certain relationships and not others. And obviously, you know, I have two children with my ex-husband and I talked a little bit about that relationship in the book, but, you know, I'd much rather uh, that they hear about my relationship with their father from me later in their lives than read about it in the book. Um, So there's very little about, or, you know, there's not much about my marriage and things like that. So some of those choices were strategic and some just were part of the writing process it was kind of some of the things that ended up making it into the book really surprised me like I didn't think that they were that big a deal there's one scene where I'm throwing a housewarming party Mm -hmm. and yeah it's funny I mean that to me like didn't seem like a big deal in my memory it didn't seem like a big deal in my life really and then I wrote that scene and my editor said there's so much really hardcore shit that happens in this book but that to me is the saddest moment in the entire book and I was so taken aback by that that I was like oh okay so I guess there's a reason that that came up and I needed to write through it or something well yeah Yeah. I mean for me that showed just like the delusions like of our thinking and expectations and thinking that it is one thing and you know just like the fantasy in our heads of what the relationship is compared to reality you know exactly yes yes wanting to to throw a housewarming party with your together right. graduate friends with your heroin addicted boyfriend, right? Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. He'll invite his friends on the great conversations. Of course. <laughs> what a lovely evening. Isn't that crazy? I know it is heartbreaking to think about just the, the level of crazy. I know. I was those- shocked. I was shocked when you were just like, I would have been a fucking wreck after he left. When you're talking about like cleaning the dishes with your friends and everything. Mm-hmm. I feel well, like- I mean, I think that's part of what I like came to understand in writing this and in having that relationship, which lasted almost 10 years. I mean, I think about, I think I just had like a tremendous capacity to be treated like shit or sidestepped or, you know, disregarded or overlooked or, and it, I, it took me a really, really long time to grow the capacity to speak up for myself and to advocate for myself and to think that I deserved to be treated better. And that's kind of like the really sad, I think one of the kind of revelations of codependency recovery is that, you know, I think we believe that if we're not needed to like put out fires or literally like feed someone or pay their bills or buy their drugs, that we're not worth loving you know that we're not going to be like lovable mm-hmm. aside from the, those roles as like somebody's keeper and that's like the really icky hard work is you know starting to like yourself enough that you know that you deserve more yep um so now that you've had some you know obviously some time removed from that relationship and you wrote this book now when you look back on it um, for a lot of my relationships, when I like look back on it now, I just want to puke and <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, it's like this great love story, but now like they have time removed from it. How, what do you think now? Um, I want to puke. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, I think I really needed to do the work of putting this 
story together in a particular way and writing this book so that I could kind of like finally let go, not only of that relationship, but of the all of the ideas. Yeah. All the ideas about love that underpin the whole, all of my decisions for my entire life. And I talk in the book about my parents falling in love, my grandparents falling in love, the movies and the songs and the, the things that sort of like fed this love mania. Um, I think I needed to sort of, process all of that in order to like once and for all set it aside and once I did and you know which is not to say that that like work is 100% done and I'll never you know be susceptible to like a rom-com ever again or whatever but, but I do think that there is I now look back on some of the things that I did in the name of quote-unquote love and I just it's tragic. It's really sad. It was really, it was so misguided and so desperate. And it's wild to me that I, that that was a thing that I called love. Somebody just like acting insane on my behalf rather than somebody acting loving and kind on my behalf. You know, I mean, it's just so weird. It's alienating in a way. And I think part of writing the book was like sort of needing to like put these pieces of my life together in such a way that I could like live with it and they could make sense. But I totally know the feeling of, you know, you get enough distance from a relationship like that and you're like, what the fuck was that? Like what, you know, what I know. was I smoking? Cringe worthy. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. I get it. Yeah. It's really crazy. And I have the added kind of layer of puzzlement and shame that comes from like doing those things as a mother, you know, I mean, I also like was like living this, this double life kind of, and trying to like be a very good mommy. And also like I was off the rails with this person. I know. Well, I think that's just to show the, the, the power of it yes. all. Yes. You know? And my therapist always says like, you know, the drugs and the alcohol, like that's easier. That's actually the easier stuff to treat. And it's like this stuff that's like the real hard work, you know? And yeah, it definitely has been that way for me. I mean, actually, you know, getting sober and staying sober has its own challenges, but, but I think that I now understand like that all of these things were in relation to one another and the sick relationships were making it so that I just absolutely needed to get fucked up all the time. And I think in the absence of that kind of relation to people and just like be living an honest life and being honest in my relationships and not cheating, lying, like running around being crazy. I, the urge to drink and do drugs is like a lot weaker, you know, I mean, well, I, I was, was doing like, it sober. Imagine <laughs> what it was like for me. It was horrible. <laughs> So many people, I've heard that story so many times. That's why so many people get sober and then like, we just wait in Al-Anon for like, that's like five years later, 10 years later, they come, they're like, oh, it's Al-Anon stuff. At least like, you could numb out. I had to feel all that shit. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. It's totally like, they should just, those programs should just be, it should be like one thing. It's like, you, yeah, can, no you can bet that people have Al-Anon issues if they need to get sober in the first place, you know? Well, you know, I think for me, I think that the alcoholism almost kept those issues from progressing as mm -hmm. much. And so it was once I kind of put that down, then that other stuff could start to really fester and grow. So, <laughs> um, so fun. So what, I guess, have you had, um, you know, you've obviously been on your healing and recovery journey have there been any real pivotal moments where you've been able to kind of see the fruits of your labor and see that you've changed or that you've reprogrammed? Have there been any significant moments? So many. I mean, I think, um, I, I think like I use the word manageability all the time because it's, um, I just think life is still challenging and still has its, you know, it like delivers many many challenges, but, um, it just, I feel like I am in right relationship with like the things in my life, the people and the things, there is nothing that really can knock me off kilter in the way that say that ex-boyfriend not calling me back mm. used to, you know, I mean, there is like, just, I just feel like the floor has been raised and there's like a level of, 
desperation, depression, misery, hopelessness, terror that just uh, I don't experience anymore. And I know that it's right there. If I were to like stop doing all my stuff, stop working my program, stop, you know, leaning on sober friends and recovering friends. But um, I would say, I mean, I think the like, the thing that most makes me feel that way is um, being in the relationship I'm in now, which is like uh, not one that I really thought was possible. I kind of thought that you could like have the drama and the big love, or you could like pack it in and like settle for a boring person and just like Mm -hmm. decide that you're going to be a good girl. And I thought that those were like the two poles. And so, um, practicing being in a relationship now that, I mean, I'm not practicing, I'm in it, but, but like being in one now with like a sane person and like feeling a lot of big love feelings, but without that just roller coaster of complete insanity is, um, is like the biggest way that I can see the progress I've made because I just, that relationship is a really, really wonderful part of my life. It's not my whole life. It doesn't determine the weather in my house or in my head. It's like, it's like, it's great. I could live without it if I had to. And it's like, but it adds like tremendous value to my life. And I just feel like seeing my own boundaries in action, which I've been practicing for so long, like my little baby boundaries and seeing that working is just like, magic I mean it's just amazing so I am like you know I mean there were so many moments where I was like uh kind of ready to throw in the towel with with Alanon or AA or you know those days where you're just like god what is this and what is it for (laughs) these people are lame whatever but I do feel like it accrues like the cumulative the effect of all these years of thinking about this stuff and talking to people and like my life is unrecognizable and so so much better today when you first got into this relationship did you find yourself in the beginning like you know having to catch yourself and based off obviously no evidence that you know whatever you're thinking is true but based off past experiences and and learning how to not react or tell yourself that you know whatever you're thinking I still I mean I still it's been like almost a year I still have to do that all the time because I'm um crazy yeah. And I had to sort of like, I have to recondition myself like every day to, to like adjust to these new expectations and new, at first it was kind of like, could this be love if, if like, nobody's like throwing anything at my head, you know, I mean, it's like, there is that phase and now it's just more, um, yeah. Learning to like enjoy it and not stir shit up just because like I'm more comfortable when shit is being stirred up. Like I'm just, I'm learning to be in the quiet of like being satisfied and content, which is crazy. It's crazy that that's difficult for us. <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. Yeah. Um, especially during qu- quarantine and stuff. Yes. Totally. It's really easy to spice things up. So. I know. I know. I know. That's wild. So where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter, Instagram. My website has my email address and um, hearing from people who understand what I'm talking about in this book or who needed this book at the end of a relationship or who just want to like talk <laughs> like has been um, the best part of this whole process. It's just, it's, so amazing and there are a lot of us out there and so yeah I encourage people to find me and do you have anything that you're working on that you want to share um I am working on a new book proposal I'm work I like have a lot of irons in the fire nothing big to share yet but soon and then the the, um the soft paperback copier coming out yeah the paperback comes out in April and I'll be doing some readings and events and stuff like that that um if you find me on Twitter or Instagram, I always post about stuff like that when I'm doing it. But yeah, I hope to be like um, back out there talking about this stuff for the next few months. That's awesome. Well, I'll make sure to share everything and links to your book and everything. And people Thank you so much. For the, for the paperback, they can read the yes. uh, copy or the, the phone copy. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, called. or the audio book. Yeah. yeah. I love the audio book. 
Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank, thank you so, so much. much. So awesome. I love this podcast. I'm already a big fan and I cannot wait to hear the rest. Well, that wraps up today's episode. And I'll be honest, I have felt emotional this whole week uh, working on this and even experienced some resistance when it came down to actually recording the episode, my part. Um, Something I will definitely be unpacking with my therapist. This really was the most painful time in my life. Um, But at the same time, I am so grateful for that pain because it has brought me here today. As always, please check out the show notes for resources, and most importantly, go read Nina's book. It is so fucking good, I promise. And now it's time for Hit a Girl Up. First, a message from Hannah. Thank you so much for putting your story and others out there, as well as your knowledge of being an adult child. I felt so seen and heard when listening to your first episode. I nearly cried at work and then rushed to share your podcast with my sisters. It has opened up a new dialogue about our upbringing and how each sibling has different or similar characteristics. Again, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Hannah. I'm so grateful that you're listening and that you shared this with your sisters. Then I had a a message from Anna or Anar. I'm not sure if it's Anna R or Anar on TikTok, but she was asking how I was able to forgive myself for the past. First, what I want to say is that the episodes going forward are going to be very much focused on healing and how the hell to do that. But to briefly answer, you know, forgiving myself took time and it took effort, a lot of effort. And it is about taking action to heal from the pain of the past while also shifting my perception of the past. You know, I am not inherently flawed. I am someone suffering from a disease, whether that be alcoholism, codependency, or family dysfunction. They are all essentially the same disease in my eyes. But I have learned to embrace my past, embrace my pain. It has shaped me into the person that I am today, who is someone that I truly love. And that doesn't mean that there isn't more work to be done or that my healing journey is over. But my pain, the things that I once viewed as shameful, have allowed me to now walk this earth with purpose and meaning. And most importantly, it has allowed me to be of service to others. That's what we all need to remember. We aren't alone our experiences, our pasts aren't fucking unique. And our healing has the capacity to aid in the healing process for others in more ways than we can imagine. If you have any questions, insights, comments, please hit me up. I would love to hear from you. See show notes for more details on that. Next week, get pumped because I am speaking with one of the pioneers of the adult child movement, the amazing Tian Dayton. It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise. 